This is your Times Daily World Briefing for Wednesday the 31st of August. I'm Nkem Ifejika. And I'm Laura Cook. The man who ended the Cold War, Mikhail Gorbachev, has died. He liberated the people. He allowed them to think and speak, even to be highly critical of him. And in the end, that was his undoing. And the United Nations appeals for help in Pakistan's floods. Pakistan is awash in suffering. The Pakistani people are facing a monsoon on steroids, the relentless impact of epochal levels of rain and flooding. Times of London Daily World Briefing. We start with news from Russia that Mikhail Gorbachev, the last leader of the Soviet Union, has died at the age of 91. US President Joe Biden and UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson have been leading the tributes to the statesman who is credited with ending the Cold War and was also awarded the Nobel Peace Prize in 1990. President Biden described him as a man of remarkable vision, while Boris Johnson said, in a time of Putin's aggression in Ukraine, his tireless commitment to opening up Soviet society remains an example to us all. Elsewhere, the president of the European Commission, Ursula von der Leyen, said he played a crucial role to end the Cold War and bring down the Iron Curtain. It opened the way for a free Europe. In recent years, Gorbachev's health had been deteriorating as he went in and out of hospital. The hospital in Moscow where he died said he had been suffering from a long and serious illness. Becoming General Secretary of the Soviet Communist Party in 1985, Mr. Gorbachev wanted to revitalize the system by introducing limited political and economic freedoms, but his reforms spun out of control. Many Russians never forgave Gorbachev for the turbulence that his reforms unleashed, considering the subsequent plunge in their living standards too high a price to pay for democracy. But Sir Roderick Lyne, a former British ambassador to Russia, told Times Radio that he should be remembered for giving to the people of Russia. He liberated the people. He allowed them to think and speak, even to be highly critical of him. And in the end, that was his undoing. But he planted a seed that has since germinated in that country. And uh, I firmly believe that what he, his legacy of freedom of expression is one that the Russians will return to. On the international stage, Gorbachev struck up a rapport with the West and Ronald Reagan, the U.S. president who had been calling the Soviet Union the evil empire. Together, they negotiated a landmark deal in 1987 to scrap intermediate-range nuclear missiles. Kenneth Lee Edelman was an advisor to President Reagan. He described how Gorbachev was a new type of Soviet leader. He really changed things with perestroika and glasnost, perestroika concentrating on economic reform of the country, glasnost opening up the closed doors of the Kremlin records and freedom of speech, freedom of assembly, freedom of press, freedom of religion, um, making, you know, the Soviet Union a normal country. Pro-democracy protests swept across the Soviet bloc nations and communist Eastern Europe from 1989, eventually leading to the dissolution of the Soviet Union and the end of the Cold War in 1991. Michael Binion used to be a foreign and diplomatic correspondent for The Times based in Moscow. The system itself simply didn't work. And Gorbachev tried to make reforms, tried to turn the Soviet Union into a sort of socialist or rather uh, social democratic state. But of course, without freedom and without multi-party elections, that simply wasn't possible. And in the end, the thing just, just ran away from him. Gorbachev was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize in 1990 for, quote, the leading role he played in the radical changes in East-West relations. 
He stayed on the fringes of politics after this time and focused his attention on educational and humanitarian projects. The TASS news agency says the former leader will be laid to rest in Moscow's Novodevichy Cemetery, the resting place of many prominent Russians, and next to his beloved wife Raisa, who died of leukemia in 1999. We move now to Pakistan, where the United Nations has appealed for aid to help deal with devastating floods caused by monsoon rains. So far, more than 1,100 people have died, with nearly 400 children among them. Estimates suggest a third of the country is underwater. Roads and bridges have been washed away, making it harder to reach those who need help. The United Nations Secretary-General, Antonio Gutierrez, made the appeal in a pre-recorded address. Pakistan is awash in suffering. The Pakistani people are facing a monsoon on steroids, the relentless impact of epochal levels of rain and flooding. The climate catastrophe has killed more than 1,000 people, with many more injured. Millions are homeless, schools and health facilities have been destroyed, livelihoods are shattered, critical infrastructure wiped out, and people's hopes and dreams have washed away. Mr Gutierrez says he plans to visit next week as the UN tries to raise $160 million to use for immediate relief. The Prime Minister of Pakistan, Shabazz Sharif, said the appeal needed to be tripled and pledged transparency for how the money would be spent. Estimates put the damage at $10 billion, with climate change being blamed for the extent of the disaster. Pakistan has had nearly three times the average rainfall for around the August period over the last 30 years. Times of London Daily World Briefing the way, the counter-offensive against Russian troops continues in Ukraine and the secret to youth might be found in the jellyfish. To Ukraine now and troops have continued their counter-offensive against Russian positions in the south and east of the country. President Vladimir Zelensky said the areas being targeted include Kharkiv in the far northeast, the Donbass in the east and Kherson in the southeast. Reports from Kherson suggested fighting is heavy, with Russians engaging Ukrainians in the streets, though it's not clear whether it's regular Ukrainian troops or partisans loyal to Kyiv. Russia released its own footage of the counteroffensive with unverified video showing the destruction of Ukrainian tanks, infantry fighting vehicles and other armoured vehicles. They also said they shot down two Ukrainian jets and five drones. Sir Richard Barons used to be the commander of the UK's Joint Forces Command and he explained the rationale behind Ukraine's counteroffensive. And it's doing it for, for sound military reasons. This is a very important town to the, the future of, of Ukraine and a very important uh, area with its link to the, both the Black Sea coast and the Dnieper River. Uh, but there's a very important political message behind this attack, which is to the Ukrainian people that to say we can win this war. So uh, we know it's hard and it's been hard, but we need to stick with it. And most of all, it's a message to Ukraine supporters in the West, which is, this war won't go on forever, but we can only w win it uh, with your help. And we know the winter's coming and the winter will be, uh, will be hard. As the fighting continued, officials from the International Atomic Energy Agency set up for the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant in southeast Ukraine. There's been damage at the site, the largest nuclear plant in Europe, as a result of shelling in the area, which has prompted fears of a nuclear disaster. Russia captured the site early in the invasion and both sides have accused each other of endangering the plant as the fighting continued. The Director General of the IAEA, Rafael Grossi, spoke to media before setting off. 
we have received, uh, you know, these operations are very complex operations. Uh, we are going to a war zone. We are going to occupy territory. And this requires uh, the explicit guarantees from not only from the Russian Federation, also from uh, the Republic of Ukraine. And we have been able to secure that. Russia says they'll only be allowed to visit for one day, but Mr. Grossi wants to take as long as is needed. Even though it's occupied by Russia, the Zaporizhia plant is currently run by Ukrainian technicians. The Times Daily World Briefing. Sport. With the latest in the world of golf, here's John Jackson. World number two golfer Cameron Smith has become the latest player and the highest ranked player to join the breakaway Live Golf League. The Australian has had an impressive season, winning two of the biggest events on the PGA Tour, the Players' Championship and the British Open. Smith admitted that money was definitely a factor in making the decision ahead of competing at Live Golf's next event at the International Golf Club outside of Boston this weekend. He won't be the only player competing for the first time. Fellow Australian Mark Leishman, Chile's Joaquin Neiman, India's Anibar Lahiri and Americans Harold Varner III and Cameron Tringale have also agreed to join the series. Live Golf is bankrolled by Saudi Arabia's Public Investment Fund, which critics say is a vehicle for the country to improve its image in the face of criticism over its human rights record. The Times Daily World Briefing. Entertainment. British comedian and actor Seleni Henry has reflected on his role in the upcoming The Lord of the Rings series, The Rings of Power, saying, I was always aiming at something like this. The show launches on Amazon Prime on Friday. Henry stars as Sadoc Burroughs in the show and has been speaking at the London premiere. I've done comedy since I was 16 years old and then I did a, I did a fellow um, in, uh, from 2010 onwards and then Comedy of Errors at the National Theatre. And I think the change from being a solo comedian to being an actor with groups of people and forming these little families continually made me realise that I wanted to be connected with other people, with other actors, and I wanted to work with great scripts. The series is set thousands of years before the events of the world-renowned The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings books. And finally, there's no longer any need to worry about expensive night creams or the pain of costly injections because apparently the secrets to immortality is held in a tiny species of jellyfish. Scientists at the University of Oviedo in Spain have found the genetic key to a jellyfish which, once it reaches adulthood, can reverse the process and go back to its polyp form, which is the prepubescent version of the jellyfish. In their study, which has been published in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, the scientists map the genetic sequence of Turritopsis dawni. It's the only known species of jellyfish able to repeatedly revert back into a larval stage after sexual reproduction. And that's your Times Daily World Briefing for Wednesday the 31st of August. This podcast from The Times is brought to you in partnership with Google Podcasts.